the word ekphrasis comes from the Greek for the description of the work of art produced as a rhetorical exercise. It is a vivid, often dramatic, verbal description of a visual art piece. everyone, this is Darwin Messaby. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of The Ekphrastic, a podcast where we paint pictures with words. Today's subject, Georgia O'Keeffe. She's commonly recognized as the mother of American modernism and is one of the most significant artists of the 20th century. We'll get to know her in just a minute. But first, let's see what's going on in the world of art. All right, so in the news, we have this first article from Forbes magazine entitled Self-Taught Artists Take, uh, oh, Multiple Artists Take Center Stage at High Museum of Art in Atlanta with Nellie Mayro in Spotlight. So a great art museum simultaneously serves as a global and local institution bringing global artwork to its local audience and introducing local artists to a global audience. On the heels of saying goodbye to an exhibition featuring two of the most celebrated artists in world history, Picasso and Alexander Calder, the, oh, we, we've done an article, uh, not an article, we've done an episode on Picasso. Perhaps I'll have to uh, put uh, Alexander Calder on the list. Uh, maybe maybe uh, tune in next season, you get a little bit of his, uh, his work. So the High Museum of Art in London now shines its spotlight on a local artist deserving more ac- more acclaim, Nellie May Rowe. Uh, really free, the radical art of Nellie May Rowe. Uh, this is going through January, 20, January 9, 2022, features nearly 60 works drawn from the museum's leading collection of her art. The exhibition is the first major presentation of her work in more than 20 years and the first to consider her practice as a radical act of self-expression and liberation in post-Civil War era South. Rose stories, uh, her story features um, a uh, a not uncommon narrative for self-taught artists in the 20th century, particularly black artists. Late in life, freed from the obligations of manual labor to earn a living, Rose rediscovered a passion for art making. Memories and personal experiences poured out of her in unique rich expressions of creativity. These were represented through the simplest of materials, crayons, cardboard, found objects. For the last 15 years of her life, Roe lived on uh, Paces Free Road, a major thoroughfare in suburban Atlanta, Vining's neighborhood where she welcomed visitors to her playhouse, which she decorated with found objects uh, installation uh, handmade dolls, chewing gum sculptures, and hundreds of drawings. Uh, the mainstream art world uh, attention found Roe before she passed, but in the um, but in the years since, her her mark has faded. The High Museum attempts to change that, positioning Roe into a broader conversation, less su- uh, susceptible to the historic marginalization which can affix to the Black Southern folk artists. Uh, and then they go on to feature some of her, some of her artwork. A lot of uh, a lot of these are, yeah. I mean, they're she's self-taught, so they're they're rudimentary. Well, 
classically rudimentary type drawings. Uh, and let's see, she has a couple posters, uh, collages. Uh, yeah, that's so interesting. Uh, I was just talking uh, to my partner about how, you know, you don't see many artwork done in crayon. And then, <laughs> I mean, if it's, I mean, fine art can be whatever medium they would decide, right? And so, yeah, she has some work done in crayon. So, I was interesting that that popped up. Uh, and so, this is a very long piece written by Chad Scott. Uh, again, it's in Forbes magazine. And so, I recommend you checking that out for some of the images. Um, and uh, it's a longer article that goes into depth about her, her passion. So, uh, definitely go look that one up. What do we have here? Okay, so our next one is from CNN.com. Um, why, uh, it's in their arts section. Why a seven foot tall Harambe statue popped up outside Facebook headquarters. So, <laughs> so Facebook headquarters has a big, the big, the big Facebook sign with the, with the thumbs up, the like, the like button, uh, and they propped up, um, the, Haram, the bronze Harambe statue right in front of this thing. So a, a gigantic bronze statue of Harambe, a gorilla, that, a gorilla that was shot dead at the Cincinnati Zoo in 2016, is installed on Tuesday in front of Facebook's uh, headquarters in California before it was quickly removed. The seven-foot-tall installation was accompanied by 10,000 bananas, which were laid at the foot of the company's blue logo. The gorilla, which was recently spotted in front of New York City's famous Charging Bull statue, on Wall Street is the work of Sapien Tribe, an organization which describes itself as the first sovereign digital nation dedicated to putting the need and welfare of human beings and our planet first. In a press release, Sapien Tribe said the stunts were an effort to show that the dominant power structures created by financial institutions like Wall Street and technology empires like Facebook have become wholly out of touch with the needs of everyday people. The statue's um, fleeting appearance on Wall Street was always meant to be a temporary installation. According to a Sapien Tribe spokesperson who told CNN at that time that it will pop up at other unknown locations across the United States. Sapien Tribe confirmed the statue was not installed with the New York City, um, with, New with the city of New York's permission over email, but that the police and other local authorities were supportive of the peaceful protests and made accommodations for us. Sapien Tribe claimed to be developing an alternative social media platform which will, according to one of the co-founders, uh, Enkeep Bhatia, offer an alternative social experience to the existing system, enabled by technology but governed by people instead of algorithms. The statue was commissioned by Sapien Tribe and created by Minnesota companies Outshaped and Wood uh, Plus uh, uh, and, and Metal Fabrications. So far, the bananas used as part of the installation have been donated to local food banks. I was about to say, I, I said 10,000 bananas. What? Because I'm looking at the picture. Oh, I thought those was hedges. <laughs> they really put 10,000 bananas? That's 10. That's about, let me see. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's about 10,000 bananas. <laughs> I saw this. I was like, what did they do with all the bananas? And because when I saw the picture at the beginning, all I saw was the gorilla and the thumb, the Facebook logo thing. And but you know, up under it are these bananas like laid out and they're not like in a in a pile, one big pile is scattered 
uh, along the bottom border. So I thought those was hedges. <laughs> I, just thought, I just thought those were hedges. I didn't even realize those were the bananas. Okay, well, it's good to know that um, there's a local food bank. <laughs> and now I'm looking at the Wall Street picture again, and there's the bananas. I never noticed that the bottom, like, center... <laughs> a little small little triangle it gives like it, it doesn't show all 10,000 well, not in this picture but it shows um, like where you know, uh, you know the edge of whatever uh, layout they had there just <laughs> the bananas right there I would have missed the hell out of that if I never went back I would have missed both pictures <laughs> with the bananas laid out there okay so um, my, my favorite snack is actually um, almond butter and banana so uh, I'm pro I'm pro the use and giving away of, of, of free bananas and and spreading the banana love uh, throughout the throughout the uh, the land. <laughs> so, all right, that was fun. Let's see. We have one last um, one last article here, and we're gonna get a little bit of an assist from uh, one of my favorite hosts, uh, TV host uh, John Oliver. So this one I'm reading it from MSM.com. Um, John Oliver curated art exhibits set to open at American Visionary uh, Art Museum this week. So at the height of the pandemic last year, as museums across the country were forced to close due to, of course, you know, public health protocols, concerns of COVID, um, Oliver launched a contest for museums to host the last week tonight's gallery for culture enrichment, as the show is called. Um, so in addition to the opportunity to display these masterworks, the show offered $10,000 uh, to the to the winning museums, plus an additional $10K uh, a donation to a local food bank. So hey, these stories kind of tied together with the seven oh, with the 10,000 bananas being donated to the food bank. And, and here's 10 grand. Oh, hold on. Did they say 10,000 bananas? Let me go back to this other one. Yep, 10,000 bananas. How about that? And then 10,000... Bananas <laughs> from John Oliver. <laughs> Some places might call cash bananas, you know, $10,000. You know, clams, they call them clams, so I couldn't, can't have your bananas too, right? <laughs> and so there's another 10K right there. That's the magic number, I guess. There's something going on in the zeitgeist. So everybody's got the 10K in mind. Maybe there's a training topic that I'm not aware of. Uh, but let me finish up this reading real quick. Baltimore's American Visionary Art Museum, home to a collection of works from outsider and self-taught artists, and we were just talking about a self-taught artist. This is this is how fortunate this to work out this way. Uh, was one of five institutions selected in August. We were thrilled, crying with joy, actually, to be selected by Mr. Oliver, as we so admire his gift for speaking truth to power through humor and art close to hearts," said uh, Avam founder, director, and primary curator Rebecca Hofberger. We were also deeply moved that Mr. Oliver recognized and cared about both the unique hardships that the COVID pandemic placed on museums and their forced public closures and his sensitivity to giving a matching grant of 10000 to each winner's local food bank. In our case, we designated the Maryland Food Bank. The exhibit will be on display from November 3rd through November 21. Oh, did I skip something? Where is this? This isn't, oh, this isn't Baltimore. John Hall's illustrious are set to open in the, this week. I think this isn't Baltimore. Oh, you know what? Let's hear from John Oliver. 
I'm going to play, uh, I guess this is a clip that they recorded. It's about two minutes long, uh, but you got time. So let's sit back and let John Oliver take it away. Hi there, art lovers. I know what you're thinking, John. You look so cultured. Are you in the world's sexiest museum? Well, the answer to both those things is yes. Yes, I am. And pretty soon, you can be too, because I'm happy to say that this illustrious exhibit is about to go on tour. You may remember that last year, in an effort to help museums that were struggling due to the pandemic, we asked museums across the United States if they would be interested in hosting these masterpieces that we accumulated in the course of what was a very weird year. Well, for some reason, many agreed. So over the next few months, our collection will be visiting exactly five museums, each of which, I'm happy to say, will receive a $10,000 donation from us and, as a bonus, will also donate another $10,000 to a food bank in their area. So, should you be interested in visiting our exhibit, what exactly will you see? Well, you will find this magnificent picture of Wendy Williams eating a lamb chop. You'll also find this sad tie painted by Judith Cudlow as part of a series exploring the absence of her husband, Larry. And of course, our pièce de résistance and where our collection began, Stay Up Late, a study of Rat's friendship which really has to be seen in person to be fully appreciated. Just look at the brush strokes there. It's like if Monet had a furry period. So here are the tour dates. We're headed to the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago for the month of October, the American Visionary Art Museum in Baltimore this November, the William V. Banks Broadcast Museum and Media Center in Detroit this December, and the Cartoon Art Museum in San Francisco this coming January. But before all of that, the tour begins where else but the Judy Garland Museum in Minnesota. These works will be on view there in September, as I'm just going to assume Judy would have wanted. For more information, visit lwtgallery.com or John Oliver has your rat erotica.com. Goodbye. All right, thanks for that, John. And it looks like this day might be in Baltimore from November 3rd through the 21st. I might be able to swing that. Oh, I did read it in the middle of the article. Baltimore's American Visionary Art Museum, AVAM. Okay. So, yeah, that's in Baltimore. Hmm. Hmm, I say, as I scratch my chin. <laughs> so, those were the uh, highlights from the news this week, or this time around. Um, back to our acrostic Georgia O'Keeffe. Georgia Toto O'Keefe was born on November 1887 in a farmhouse to parents that were dairy farmers. She was the second of seven children. Living on, his, on this farm near Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, uh, by age 10, she had decided to become an artist. And with her sisters, Ida and Anita, she received art instruction from local watercolorist Sarah Mann. In late 1902, O'Keefe's moves from Wisconsin to the close-knit neighborhood of Peacock Hill in Wimsburg, Virginia. The family apparently relocated to Virginia so O'Keefe's father could start a business making rusticated cast concrete blocks uh, in anticipation for 
the demand for the block in the peninsula building trade, but the demand never materialized. Georgia originally stayed with her aunt in Wisconsin, but later joined a family in Virginia where she would complete her high school education. By the time she graduated from high school in 1905, O'Keefe had determined to make her way as an artist. She studied at the Art Institute of Chicago, ranking at the top of her class. In 1907, she attended the Art Students League in New York City, where she studied under William Merritt Chase and Kenyon Cox. In 1907, in 1908, rather, she had won the League's William Merritt Chase Still Life Prize for her oil painting, Dead Rabbit with Copper Pot. Her prize was a scholarship to attend the League's outdoor summer school in Lake George, New York. While in the city, O'Keefe visited galleries such as 291, a renowned art gallery in Midtown Manhattan co-owned by her future husband and photographer, Alfred Steiglitz. Again, in 08, unable to, to fund her education any further, her father had gone bankrupt and her mother was seriously ill with tuberculosis. She took a job in Chicago as a commercial artist and worked there until 1910. She then returns to Virginia to re, um, re recuperate from a case of measles and later moved with her family to Charlottesville. She stopped painting for about four years and said that the smell of turpentine even made her ill. So she began teaching art in 1911. Between the years of 1911 and 1918, she worked as a commercial illustrator and art teacher in Virginia, Texas, and South Carolina. During that time, she studied art during the summers between 1912 and 1914 and was introduced to the principles and philosophies of Arthur Wesley Dow, who created works of art based upon personal style, design, and interpretation of subjects rather than trying to copy or represent them. The, some of that hyperrealism stuff that we've talked about in the past, not a good thing, not a bad thing. She just, you know, this is just a different philosophy. Dow offered O'Keefe an alternative to established ways of thinking about, about art. She experimented with abstraction for two years while she taught art in West uh, Texas. Through a series of abstract charcoal drawings, she developed a personal language to better express her feelings and ideas. Remember, she's on this new philosophy now. Her studies at the University of Virginia based upon Dow's principles were pivotal in her development as an artist. It was through her exploration and growth as an artist, she helped to establish the American Modernism Movement. By the mid-1920s, O'Keefe was recognized as one of America's most important and successful artists, known for her paintings of New York City uh, sky, skyscrapers, an essential American symbol of modernity, as well as her equally radical depictions of flowers. O'Keefe is widely recognized for her technique and themes, even though her work may show elements of different modernist movements such as surrealism and precisionism, her work is uniquely her own style. Though her themes were taken from objects in nature such as the Evening Star, Palo Duro, Canyon, and the sun uh, rising on the plains, O'Keefe's sense of freedom and love of the plains carried her work into the field of abstract nature expression. An important part of her life as an artist was spent in New, York, in, uh, New Mexico. In the summer of 1929, O'Keefe made the first of many trips to northern New Mexico. The stark landscape and Native American and Hispanic cultures of the region inspired a new direction for O'Keefe and her art. For the next two decades, 
she spent most summers living and working in New Mexico. There, she felt keen to portray desert animals, mountains, and also skulls of animals that represented for her an, an eternal beauty of the desert. Juxtaposition of these elements was O'Keeffe's approach to surrealism. She created many forms of abstract art, including close-up of flowers, such as the Red Kana paintings, that many found represent female genitalia. Although O'Keeffe consistently denied that intention, the stigma kind of stuck with her work even after her death. O'Keeffe's flower paintings have often been called erotic, which is not exactly wrong, but the emphasis is misplaced. It would be surprising if an artist with her passion for the transcendent did not make use of erotically charged imagery. Reducing her flowers to symbols of female sexuality, however, is a trivializing mistake. O'Keeffe's interest in the scale of transcendence led her to violate certain boundaries. Not only did she make the large small and the small large, but she took serious chances with color, sometimes upsetting conventions of visual harmony in order to startle the eye into new kinds of seeing. She liked to stress visual edges that have metaphysical implications between night and day, earth and sky, life and death. Today's ekphrastic poem is one of those close-up, small to large, and flower-inspired, Black Iris Number 3. As a reminder, here's how this works. So remember, I'm going to be um, reading a description of a visual art piece. So it behooves you that while I'm speaking, you should visit the ekphrastic page on my website, darwindarko.com. Check out the show notes. You should find a link there. At the site, you can find a catalog of all the artwork we discuss. To accompany today's reading, I want you to pull up the image of George O'Keeffe's 1926 oil painting, Black Iris Number 3. I'll give you a second to search for it in your browser. A barrette, a leather jacket, silk stockings, mink, a pink boa, male tuxedo, jeans, something form-fitting, emeralds, an evening gown, sequins, Armani only, a tutu, see-through black underwear, a taffeta ball gown. Something machine washable. Costume eye mask. Purple velvet pajamas. Angora. A red bow. Ermine and pearls. A large hat full of flowers. A leopard hat. A silk kimono. Glasses. Sweatpants. A tattoo. An electrical shock device to keep unwanted strangers away. High heels lace, and combat boots, purple feathers and twigs and shells, cotton, a pinafore, a bikini, a slicker. The question, if a vagina got dressed, 
what would it wear? Slow down. Is that you? Feed me. I want. Yum yum. Oh yeah. Start again. No, over there. Lick me. Stay home. Brave choice. Think again. More, please. Embrace me. Let's play. Don't stop. More. More. Remember me? Come inside. Not yet. Whoa, mama. Yes. Yes. Rock me. Enter at your own risk. Oh, God. Thank God. I'm here. Let's go. Let's go. Find me. Thank you. Bonjour. Too hard. Don't give up. Where's Brian? That's better. Yes, there. There. The question? If your vagina could talk, what would it say in just two words? Those were some select readings from the Vagina Monologues by Eve Ensler. All right, well, to rectify my perpetuation of the old O'Keefe um, trope, uh, we have a, a bonus article um, that I can help make up for, you know, to debunk some. What? Well, let me just start reading it. Georgia O'Keeffe hated people thinking her flower paintings are vaginas. Remember that one part I read earlier where she's like, mm, that's not quite what I was doing. <laughs> but uh, so it goes on to say, to even the biggest amateur art aficionado, Georgia O'Keeffe is that lady who painted vaginas. But try to say that to her face. You can't because she's dead and has been so since 1986. But still, if you ever get the opportunity in some kind of Bill and Ted scenario, she'll probably close her eyes, take a deep breath, and prepare to explain to you that she's never painted a vagina and she had to do um, as she had to do her entire life. So I'm reading this article. This is from cracked.com. Uh, she really was just painting flowers, y'all. There's, uh, the, there's a lot of personality in this article. So let me, uh, uh, let me center myself and try to give this author <laughs> the, the just do uh, with this rendition of a conversation with George O'Keefe. She really was just painting flowers, y'all. They're so big and close up because O'Keefe was interested in the close cropping techniques of contemporary photography. And she wanted to force the viewer to reckon with the immensity of nature and make even busy New York New Yorkers take time to see what I see of flowers. A task at which she strove admirably, but decidedly failed. Not through any fault of her own, of course. Naturally, the person respond, responsible for making sure everyone perverted O'Keefe's pretty flowers was a man. And we'll continue. It was her husband, photographer Alfred Steiglist. How did I say before? Stieglist? Stieglist? Alfred Stieglist, who began promoting her paintings as softcore porn in 1919. Probably figuring genitals sell better than flora. Despite his wife's objections, he even solicited reviews and essays from a bunch of critics who were 
obviously also men, to distribute as pamphlets at her shows, touting the sex appeal of a bunch of irises. Later in life, O'Keefe reached out to Mabel uh, Dodge Luhan, hoping to convince the famed patron of the arts to write about her work from a feminine perspective so that someone, anyone, would give her paintings the G-rated credit they deserve. It just goes to show that you can be one of the greatest minds of your field, but if you're a woman, you'll always be reduced to genitals. And they're bringing that point home there. And this article is by Amanda Manon, uh, written in Crack Magazine. This was actually last year, 2020. So it was a prescient time for them to debunk the Georgia O'Keeffe uh, myth. O'Keeffe continued to paint into the 1970s. Her almost complete loss of eyesight and ill health during the last 15 years of her life significantly curtailed her artistic productivity. Her eye problems began in 68, actually, and by 71, uh, macular de degeneration caused her to lose all her central vision, leaving her eventually with only some peripheral sight. In 1986, O'Keefe died in St. Vincent Hospital in Santa Fe, having almost reached her goal of living to be 100. She was 98 years old. As an artist of national standing, Georgia O'Keeffe has been well known in America for many decades. As a matter of fact, in 1977, President Gerald Ford awarded her the nation's highest civilian honor, the Medal of Freedom. More recently, her art has begun to attract similar attention and accolades abroad. Miss O'Keeffe's paintings hang in museums all over the United States, including at the Met, uh, the Whitney Museum of Art, uh, and in most major private collections. But she retained a great deal of her prolific production. The Georgia O'Keeffe Museum's collections include nearly 150 paintings and hundreds of works um, on, on paper, pencil, and charcoal drawings, as well as pastel and watercolors. The collection is dedicated to the artist's legacy, uh, her life, uh, American modernism, and public engagement. It also includes personal property from rocks and bones and dresses and paintbrushes and a significant archive of documents and photographs related to the artist's life and times. The museum comprises multiple sites in two locations, one in Santa Fe, the other in Abiquiu, New Mexico. It opened in uh, July 1997, 11 years after her death. In 2014, O'Keeffe's 1932 painting, Jimson Weed, White Flower, number one, sold for $44.5 million, more than three times the previous world auction record for any female artist. On that note, O'Keeffe never wanted to be considered just a woman artist, and indeed, she surpassed that concept. By abstracting the natural world, O'Keeffe created images that have become a part of the mythology and iconography of the American artistic landscape. Wow. Georgia O'Keeffe is a legend. Was a legend, is a legend. It's, it's so, uh, so, so cool to get, to get to know her a little bit. Thanks for joining me on that ride. Looks like her stuff is all over the place. We would definitely keep an eye out next time we see a Georgia O'Keeffe uh, uh, production. And it's been fun. 
Thanks for joining me. We painted yet another pretty picture today with our words. I'm glad you took the time to join. Uh, for this and all the artwork we discussed, please visit darwindarko.com backslash ekphrastic. It's where you can find all this stuff catalog for your viewing pleasure. If you like the show or if you want to leave some creative feedback, please rate us five stars, hopefully, and leave a comment. That's always helpful. Another great way to support the show is to share it on your socials, Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp, all the good stuff. I'm Darwin Messadu. Thanks again for listening to the acrostic.